following message is from the 2015 IBCD Summer Institute, equipped to counsel. Okay, some of you weren't here, so I'm going to give a brief introduction, and if people come in later, they'll miss that. They can listen to the audio later. Um, What this class is and what this track is, is really to introduce people to the IBCD Karen Discipleship Program that we have um, a certification process by which you go through two levels at 15 hours each. And then there's also 10 hours of observation videos that you can watch. And it's, we have our own certification in care and discipleship. And then we're also a training center for the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, of which Heath Lambert, who spoke last night, is the executive director. And so through IBCD, you can get our certifications, which are kind of baby steps, which for some people is as far as they're able to go, or you can work for the national certification through ACBC. And so in this room, during the workshop sessions, I started last night with the two-part, first of the two-part talk on what is biblical counseling, and then another one of our teachers from IBCD, Tom Maxim, will do the next two, which go through the kind of the basics of our methodology. So this is kind of how we think about biblical counseling is in my two sessions, and then Tom is going to summarize the methodology. And if you want to keep going, you will have just finished the first four-plus hours of the Care and Discipleship curriculum. And if you want to keep going, you have multiple avenues by which you could keep going and getting your training. One would be online. There are audios for free of all 30-something hours of our Care and Discipleship curriculum. Uh, Even the handouts, like you have the handout in your book here, those also are online, one by one, that can be, you can have free, or you can buy, I didn't bring it this time, the, we have workbooks that go through level one and level two that you could follow as you're listening. So you can listen for free online, and it's also on DVD, and I don't know why, some people learn better by looking, I guess, I'm not sure I'd want to look at me for 30 hours, but... Uh, for some reason, people keep buying these. The, the DVDs are also very useful because people take it into a church. There are many churches here who are using it as leadership training, Sunday school curriculum. That's what John talked about in the last session, how in his church plant they're taking the leaders through the DVDs. There's a discussion guide that goes with it. And then also uh, we have observation videos. John talked about how part of, part of our training is not just that you learn the theory of counseling, and I would liken it kind of this mini, mini version of like a doctor. First he sits in the class and he learns about it, then he watches other doctors do it, then he does it. And that's how our training works, where first you're getting the theory, which is, this is the very beginning of that. Then you watch, and people come and observe live in Escondido, but also you have opportunity Uh, We have DVDs of 12 sessions of counseling that you can watch, and many these are actually used all over the world. We've sold hundreds of these using in seminaries and colleges, missionary situations abroad. They've been translated into German recently, which we're excited about. I actually was lecturing in Germany earlier this morning via Skype with translation with the people who were doing that training. Um, and so we're excited about this training. We think that um, this goes, we did not originate it. We've packaged it this way. But if you've, you know, I know some of you may have already been through some of it, in which case um, you can leave if you want to. Elise is across the hall, and uh, you can get that. But otherwise, I'm jumping into uh, the care and discipleship training, and I guess it'll continue. Everybody, to understand what we're doing here. It was Craig who was actually, he's our operations director. He's the brains of the outfit. I just come and teach and counsel. He actually has all the vision. His idea was let's give people who are new an exposure to the training. And uh, so that's where we are. Last night I covered uh, in part one, and I'm not going to go over all that again because it wouldn't be fair to those who are here, why... 
there are problems with secular humanistic psychology and that it is a different worldview. It's a worldview that produces homosexual marriage. It's a worldview, when Heath did such a great job last night describing these problems that everybody's facing. We're all going to die. We all have trials in our lives. We have confusion in our lives. The world, the flesh, the devil, all these things are happening all around us. Only the Word of God has the answers for this. And the answers that people get from psychology are inadequate answers and they're actually contrary to scripture because I mean if psychology is the study of the soul and you don't even believe that man has a soul you got a problem if we're just physical beings and brain waves are our experience of life uh, if you don't understand that we're creatures made in the image of God and that we are under God and under his law and we're sinners and so they're totally unable apart from the revelation God has given mankind is unable to solve his own problem yet in his arrogance he tries to then last night we talked about I'm trying to see where that jumps in here uh, in part two okay I got through some of that last night (laughs) of what's in part two that among Christians, and I've got kind of a four, like a spectrum of approaches people take to helping people with their problems. There are some Christian organizations, seminaries, denominations that without reservation embrace psychology. And they would just say that there's a very narrow swath for us as Christians that we can pray for people and we can uh, teach them about salvation and baptism. But if people really have deep personal problems, send them to a professional who's been trained. Whether he's a Christian or not isn't a big deal because psychology has the answers. Okay, that's one swath. A lot of the mainline denominations are that way. The second swath I talked about last night is people that say, well, it'd be good if you're going to use... Psychology has the answers, but it'd be good if your psychologist was a Christian. And... Uh, there are some very famous people who have been on the radio and written books and who are very popular among Christians, who I would put into that category. They have been extensively trained in psychology, and they see the answer psychology gives as being the key to solving people's big problems. And again, Vodi was today in Second Timothy. We talked last night about you know, the self-esteem thing and how there are Christian authors who say the key to psychological well-being, the key to your kids being successful is they have a great self-esteem. But Second Timothy 3 says, in the last days, men will be lovers of self. And again, the, the problem is these people, their big book is psychology. They, if they would have spent 20 years studying the Bible instead of psychology, they might have realized that some of what they're saying is actually contrary to Scripture. Uh, I think this is also what has led many so-called Christian psychologists to embrace homosexuality, to embrace unbiblical gender roles in the family and in the church because their training, their expertise, and their trust is in the wisdom of man rather than in the Word of God. So that's as far as I got last night. And now what I plan to do is take a third perspective, which is more biblical, more emphasis on the Bible, but still a lot of psychology. And then finally, where we are is the radical right wing of Christian counseling. Let me pray as before I continue. Father in heaven, thank you for the good things we've heard today. Thank you. What great privilege it is to have Vodi and Heath here and the gifts you've given them to speak to us and the message they have about the necessity of biblical counseling for people who are hurting and the necessity of your word to help people who are hurting. And Lord, I thank you for these brothers and sisters who are here now. Help them to understand your word better. Help equip us, O God, that we would be able to minister your word individually to people. That as they face difficulties and crises, that they would see you alone have the answer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the third perspective um, 
is called synergism, which is kind of a cool word. People think, yes, synergy. Got get two things working together. And they would say, let's create synergy between psychology and the Bible. And they're going to kind of work together. And you, what you can do is you can, you can add the best of psychology to Scripture. And don't just say, don't accept everything they say. You want to kind of look at the Bible and see... And, and these people will put more effort into attaching verses to their psychological concepts. Some of that would be, like I mentioned last night, people will say, well, the Bible does say you're supposed to love yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, it says, well, horrible exegesis. But, uh, and then sometimes they'll call themselves biblical counselors. Uh, Larry Crabb, who as I know is a brother, uh, you know, brother in Christ, uh, he had a, a, coined a term early in his writings. He called it spoiling the Egyptians. That just as the Israelites in Egypt took the, the good things from Egypt out with them and the Egyptian people gave them lots of stuff, that we can spoil the Egyptians of psychology and take the best stuff and add it to our stuff and we'll be better off. The problem is when you start reading the books these people write, that their concepts are still, they're, they're grown in the soil of psychology and they try to transplant it into the church and they're still often built around psychological concepts. And I'll just give you an example from Crabb. In one of his early books, he wrote the book about, and he based it around Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Anybody ever studied Maslow in college? I studied Maslow a little bit in college, even as a business major. And they'd say, well, you got this kind of pyramid where first you have to have your physical needs met. And, and then the next step uh, after that is you need security. So not just that I've got food and shelter now, but I want to feel I've got it tomorrow. Then you want love and then purpose. And then the ultimate is self-actualization. And so he tries to show how you can kind of attach verses to each of those things. Yeah, the, the body needs food. Uh, you know, you're concerned. Don't worry about you're going to eat tomorrow. Well, there's security. And uh, obviously love. We want relationship, purpose. Now, I do have a problem with self-actualization, right? Is that the supreme human experience? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It's to live for His glory. It's, it's, it, it's still very man-centered. I'll take another example. That And by the way, I'm not saying that everything Larry Crabb says is bad. I love his expression, many marriages are two ticks and one dog. I think that there's, I can attach a verse to that well enough in counseling experience. With that. Another example would be love and respect. Maybe some of you have read the book. It's not like this is terrible. He's taking the out of Ephesians uh, 5 that women want to be loved and men want to be respected. And Paul says, let every man love his wife, every wife respect her husband. But it's detached, well, a lot of it, it's detached from the reality that no man is going to love his wife so well she's going to really feel secure. He's a man who's going to fall short. Jeremiah 17, verse 5, Don't trust in men or make the flesh your strength or you'll be like a bush in the desert. And so you go to, you read the book and say, well, boy, my problem is my husband doesn't love me as well as Christ loves the church. Does that mean you're going to be dying on the vine until that changes? Or my problem is my wife doesn't respect me uh, the way I want to be respected. And so, and, so, and, and the problem is that ultimately the, the key in marriage is that you're, Jeremiah 17 verse 6 blessed is 7 verse blessed is the man whose trust is in the Lord he will be like the tree planted by rivers of water that yields its fruit in its season does not suffer in year of drought is that what empowers a man to love his wife or a wife to submit to a husband when each one is letting you down constantly because they're sinners like you is the gospel of God's grace and so Anyway, and, and a lot of the psychological books, their, their, their big concept tends to be from psychology. They try to attach scripture to it. And part of it is their study has been, their big book, their big study, their degrees are in psychology. Uh, as David Powlison says, a wrong theory distorts everything. Uh, there's a difference between the subconscious 
as psychology defines it, and the inner man as the Bible does. It sounds kind of similar, like something inside of you that you're not constantly aware of, but it's very different. Uh, Rich Gans writes, many Christian psychologists receive an entirely secular training and are ignorant of the scriptures. They seldom question the underlying worldview of the field in which they were trained. Instead, they essentially take a secular approach and sprinkle a few Christian insights on top. The result can be secular insights that sound pious but are dangerous and misleading. And Jay Adams, who was a founder of our movement 40 years ago, made the statement, a reminder that what was spoiled from the Egyptians was not their beliefs. It was their gold, their silver, and their clothing. And they were, and, and the people of God were explicitly told to leave behind the religious ideas. In Leviticus 18, if you want to look, he says in verse 3, You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you live, nor you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. You shall walk, you shall not walk in their statutes. You could say, well, there might have been some good laws in Egypt. There might have been some good laws in Canaan. They probably were against murder and some of that stuff, right? But should we adopt those laws then into our law, add it to the Mosaic law? If it's any good, it's already in there. I don't need them to tell me that. It's already in, God's already revealed it to me because it's sufficient. But their law is corrupted by their beliefs, your belief system. And so in the way that psychology and its belief system is as religious as the ideas of the Egyptians or the Canaanites, uh, it, it doesn't fit. And it can be dangerous. And actually what happens, by the way, when you read Exodus, what did they do with the gold they got out of Egypt? They made a golden calf. They turned it into the ideas and the religion of Egypt. Uh, didn't benefit them all that much. So when Paul says, for example, in, in Colossians chapter 2, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. And then he says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And so we are to be suspicious. Like It, it, it grieved me when I read the book I showed you last night on the four or then later five views of, of Christian counseling that one of the guys who claims to be a Christian and teaches in a Christian institution has decided that, well, probably we should just accept that homosexuality is normal. He did not get that from exegetical work in Scripture. He got that because he's so immersed in the worldview in which he's been trained, and now it's caused him to overthrow what the Bible says in order to be able to conform to the world. So that brings me to what we are, which was the title of the whole two lectures, is biblical counseling. And what is biblical counseling? Biblical counseling says that the Bible is the sole and sufficient authority for helping people with their spiritual problems. And Vodi touched upon this in his talk, which is the topic of his talk, but you think of 2 Timothy 3.16. And, and what I appreciated, by the way, that when I first started ministry, the big debate in the 70s and the early 80s was inerrancy. And 2 Timothy 3.16 was part of that debate, is that all Scripture is God-breathed. And there were people who would say, well, the Bible contains the Word of God, as opposed to being the Word of God. And so you would have to pick and choose the parts you would agree or disagree with, and people are still doing that. But... The thing I appreciated when I actually started studying under George Scipione, I started reading Jay Adams' books when I was in Saudi Arabia in the 80s as a fledgling pastor there, and then on into seminary in the later 80s, is the Bible is not merely inerrant, it is also sufficient. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And when you read even some of the people in this third category of the spoiling the Egyptians guys who say, yeah, we need to take psychology, and, and you'll read what they say, and they, 
I've got quotes in my notes. I won't read them all, but essentially saying, you know, the Bible's helpful, but people's people are their needs are so complex and sophisticated. We need psychology because the Bible's too simplistic, and that is denying the sufficiency of Scripture. That God, who created us with a body and a soul, who understands us perfectly, explains who we are, he explains what the problem is, and he gives the answers in his word for spiritual problems. Now, the Bible is not a textbook for medical issues. This is soul work, not body work. If my counselee with a brain injury, the counselee with schizophrenia, and their brain is shrinking and deteriorating, or Alzheimer's, uh, a person with a massive hormonal imbalance, like Vodi said, a person who hasn't slept in three days, people do go crazy when they're, they don't sleep for days at a time, and, and they hurt their brains. And, and, and so there is body work to be done, but when it comes to addressing spiritual issues, and again, verses familiar, just 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to mankind. People now, and even some of these Christian psychologists, are writing as if now in the 21st century we're learning about all these complicated PTSD and ADHD and whatever other alphabet letters they want to use. And they've got all, and it's like in Bible times people didn't really understand this. And so we need psychology to uh, help us understand how to help these people. No, there's nothing new under the sun. I think Tamar in 2 Samuel 13 had PTSD, by the way. Um, and, and the Bible has answers. And so, and the goal of biblical counseling is to give instruction from God's Word so that the counselee can achieve God's goals in his or her life. And uh, passages that summarize this, uh, 1 Timothy 1, verse 5. Uh, second, yeah, First Timothy one five. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Colossians one verses 28, 27 to twenty nine is one of our favorite texts explaining what we're doing. We're trying to do what Paul did. He says in verse twenty eight, we proclaim him that is Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. That's our goal, is to use the Word of God so that every person who comes may grow in Christ. And I have in your notes uh, ten key concepts in biblical counseling. And I'll try to pace myself, because they're all so wonderful. You could give an hour on each of these, but I won't. Um, the first is that biblical counseling is God-centered. And this right away is in complete contrast to secular therapy and even a lot of so-called Christian therapy. Uh, when people come in for counseling, it's a question that peop- you know, the counselor will ask, what can I do for you? And in secular therapy, the idea is the client generally sets the agenda And the point is to achieve the client's goals, whatever that may be. Uh, I've had funny cases come to me. Probably one of the most bizarre was early, a good 20 years ago at IBCD, a lady comes in. I don't know how she heard about us. And as I learn about her, I learn she is a stripper. She's living with a Muslim. And she wants me to help her get along better with her live-in Muslim boyfriend. This is why I don't counsel women alone as <laughs> uh, a principle. Any, not just her, but anybody. But and part of what I do is say, well, your goal is not God's goal. <laughs> and I'm here, you know, as Paul says to the Corinthians, our aim is to be pleasing to him, whether absent or present. And my goal in counseling is, my job is to represent God. It's about Him and what pleases Him. What is, and the question I have is, what does God want to say to this person? What does God have to say in this person's life? And that may not be what they want. Their goals are often contrary to God's goals. 
And I talk to people who are even Christians who are doing secular therapy or uh, psychological counseling, marriage and family counseling, and their practice sometimes limits them from being able to openly do this. So when, when counseling is taking place, the issue is, what does God want in this person's life? And this person may say, I want to divorce my spouse. I actually got an email from somebody yesterday that says, I want you to help me as I'm going to divorce my spouse. Well, if you don't have biblical grounds, I'm not going to help you. I'm going to tell you it's wrong. And I may even involve your church if you continue on a path that's clearly unbiblical. Now, there's a lot of steps between here and there. So it's God-centered. It's about God. And your goal, the goal of everybody, should be to honor and glorify God. He sets the agenda. And then biblical counseling confronts sin as the source of our spiritual problems. It all comes from there. We believe that we are made in the image of God, but also that we're fallen. And man's fallen condition is the source of counseling problems. And as Heath brought out last night, some of us are in trouble because of our own sin. Actually, all of us get in trouble because of our own sin. But also, sometimes we're sinned against. Let's say you're counseling Tamar. All she did is tried to obey her father by ministering to her sick half-brother. And she was raped. She is a victim. But it's because of the sin condition in the world that this has happened. And God has something to say to comfort her. God has something to say to help her under those conditions. So... People come, and their troubles are because of of sin in the world. Now, it could be because of sin in the world. I guess you had an earthquake, and your family died, and you lived, or all kinds of awful things can happen. But it's sin is the core, is the source of the problems that exist in the world. But then, along with understanding of human sinful condition, there's also the hope, and this is maybe the most important thing you're going to hear, and that is that biblical counseling is gospel-centered. It's Christ-centered. And if you keep going with care and discipleship, I have an entire talk on what's based on my little booklet that they have in the bookstore called Help, I Want to Change. And we believe biblical counseling is not just telling people, stop doing this and start doing that. Stop this bad behavior and start doing the right behavior. We're not against saying that, but that's not where we begin. That biblical counseling is, in its essence, redemptive. That the, and, and what I tell the people we train is, and I actually supervise a lot of people now as well. I listen to their recordings, I read their notes, and try to help train them to get them through the last stage of the preparation. And if you have talked more than a few minutes to your counseling in a biblical counseling session and you have not been using scripture, you're not really a biblical counselor. That's going to be part later. I hear sometimes they're saying things that are biblical, but they're not showing from the Bible. Well, a Mormon might agree with some of what you're saying here. Um, you need to show the authorities in the Word of God. But as important as that, as you go, if you go in an entire session and you don't show how the gospel is central to the solution to this problem, don't tell them we trained you. <laughs> We're not moralists who are trying to help people to become better people. Actually, the more I know people, unbelievers are as much moralistic as Christians are. They just have different morals, right? Like right now, you're a bad person if you don't believe in gay marriage. But they're, they're always judging. They have a morality. We're not just telling people, stop stealing, work hard. I mean, I'm, I'm all for people stop stealing and working hard. But... The solution to every problem begins in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whoever's in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. In, in a later talk in the Karen Discipleship Curriculum, we spent a long time going through Romans chapter 6. And I think it's very significant in Paul's epistles. He gives us a pattern that is something that really sets an agenda in our counseling. Is The pattern is Paul begins by telling us what God has done for us. And then after that, he tells us what we should do in response to what God has done for us. But he begins right there. And so uh, you look at the book of Ephesians, right? First three chapters, nothing but what God has done for us. And then in light of that, here's what we do. 
but you don't put the penthouse on the ground. <laughs> right? It's, it's the top story. It's, the, it's where the roof should be. The foundation is the gospel for the behavior that needs to change. And it's the gospel that empowers that behavior. And that's what Romans 6 is about. Is he's, he's saying that do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus and baptized into his death? We've been buried with him with baptism into death. So as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we might walk in newness of life. I don't have time to expound that fully. You can listen to the audio online at lunch if you want. But the first imperative in the book of Romans is in verse 11 of chapter 6 where he says, Consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the first command he gives is you need to think rightly about what the gospel has done to you. Your old self has died. As you were baptized, you're united with Christ. As baptism symbolizes your old self has died, good riddance. You've been raised a new self in union with Christ. As you've been saved by grace through faith. And now you are no longer a slave to sin. Sin is no longer the operating principle that controls your life. You've been set free to be able to... You know, it used to be when sin said jump, you said how high. And when you're converted, you can say to that old slave master, I don't have to obey you anymore because Christ Jesus has set me free and now I serve him. And that reality is foundational to change. The world is all about change. Work harder, quit smoking, lose weight. Do it on your own. Whereas biblically it's saying it's, it's what Christ has done for you that gives you this new nature And by the way, what we're aiming for isn't just outward behavior that you can quit smoking, lose weight, stop yelling at your kids. What we're aiming for is a transformation, which is going to be the next point that begins in the heart, is the gospel has transformed you and made you a new person so that you're doing this for the right reason, with the right motive, ultimately for the glory of God. Where it's not that you want to quit smoking or lose weight or stop yelling so that your life will be better and think people will think better of you and you'll feel better about yourself. It's for the glory of God to display the power of the gospel in you. Also realizing you couldn't have done any of it without him. And then and that's in general that the gospel is foundational in that what God has done for us is how Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 6, such were you, and you've been washed and sanctified, that whatever enslaved you, you've not only been forgiven it, but you've been set free from slavery to that. So the one who was formerly a homosexual or an adulterer is now no longer that, no, no longer a drunkard, because he's been set free and he's living out that reality. And then the gospel is also central in that not only in general does the gospel transform us, but in the particulars. Why? Why should the woman whose husband was unfaithful to her that Heath talked about last night, right? When the husband went off on a trip and hooked up with some woman, why should she forgive him? And even more importantly, how can she forgive him? How can she get over the bitterness and the anger that is characteristics of people who have been hurt and wronged so much? There's only one good answer. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4, uh, 31 and 32. Colossians 3 has a parallel passage. Uh, You could also go to the parable of the unmerciful servant. But you let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also forgave you. It's knowing that forgiveness and experiencing that forgiveness and delighting that forgiveness doesn't just tell you how to forgive, it empowers you to forgive. And so our counselees need major doses of gospel every time we meet with them, not just law. I'm not against law, okay? Some people only want gospel. Gospel is foundational. Gospel is to be emphasized constantly. I'll also tell the adulterer, break it off. (laughs) You know, take her number out of your phone, get accountable. But that's founded on the gospel. I mean, the same thing. A husband isn't treating his wife well. And you, can, you can command the husband, buy her flowers, take her on dates, buy her gifts, put down your cell phone and look at her when she's talking to you. And he may in the flesh be able temporarily to accomplish a few of those things. 
But Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church, having given himself up for her. If a husband is failing to love his wife, his problem is not that he needs to be taught women like, some women like flowers and uninterrupted, uninterrupted conversation. Everybody knows some of that stuff. The problem is there's a disconnect between his professed knowledge of the gospel and his marriage. And what he needs more of is he needs to more comprehend how Christ has loved him with a, an amazing, infinite love. And if, if he is thrilled by that love and daily thinking of that love, it's actually the prayer at the end of Ephesians 3, that we would be able to grasp the height, the length, the breadth of the love of Christ. That is what will make him a better husband. Not just a bunch of imperatives saying, do this, do this, do this. Brother, pray the prayer at the end of Ephesians 3 that you'll be able to understand the love of Christ. You'll be strengthened in the inner man to comprehend that love. And that that love would so stir your heart, you'll want to love your wife, not based upon her present performance, but based upon Christ's performance for you. I don't have time to do it. Any counseling problem you come up with, I can show you how it ties directly to the gospel. It's like Spurgeon said when you're preaching... You know, go straight cross country for the cross. You're, you're always safe doing that because of all the Bible points there. So our counseling is Christ-centered and redemptive. Counseling aims at the heart, not merely behavior. Uh, one well-known passage that addresses this is in Mark chapter 7, where Jesus says, That which proceeds out of the heart, verse 20, defiles the man. From within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these proceed from without and defile the man. And the context is about foods being clean and unclean. And the Jews thought, well, boy, if I eat this, it's going to defile me. And Jesus said, the issue with defilement isn't what goes into your mouth. It's not external. It's what's in your heart. People commit adultery and murder or they are murder with their tongue and anger because of something going on inside. And so we're talking to people. We don't just say, well, stop doing this, start doing that. You, you're exploring with people what's going on in your heart. What are you saying in your heart right now that leads you to hit your kid in anger? What judgments are you making in your heart? And those need to be addressed with the gospel. Uh, we're interested in behavior, but it's secondary. And again, it's, it's the redemption in Christ that gives us new hearts. And then counseling, we've already got this, is based upon the infallible, all-sufficient Word of God. That God has given us everything we need in the Scriptures. It's sufficient to help people with their spiritual problems. Uh, in 20 plus years of counseling in a counseling center, and I both counsel in our local church, but then in the counseling center, I've also become a magnet for people who have really, really difficult problems that I've never seen this before, and they call or write or something like that. I'm not, I'm not inviting a large number of those right now, please, but um, I've never seen anything that the Bible did not contain an answer for. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to man. The Bible is sufficient. The particular manifestation may be different, but I've never had a situation where the Bible didn't speak to it. Um, sometimes it doesn't come to me instantly. One thing that's wonderful now is we live in a better day than 40 years ago because now you have hundreds of thousands, not hundreds, thousands of people practicing biblical counseling. You have seminaries and professors and colleges. And so, like when it came to PTSD, I didn't know that much about it. We've got Charlie Hodges, who works with veterans in a VA hospital as a doctor and a biblical counselor. And so he, with his experience with that, applying the scriptures to these men, and you know, so it's a great time. The Bible is sufficient, and it's also really powerful. That's why I say don't just tell them the right stuff. Show them from the Word of God. If you can't find it yet on your own... One thing would be, I think in the back there's a list of, you know, go to, like a hundred verses, go to verses. Start there. You don't have to have them memorized. Just know where they are. 
And if you can't do that, use a concordance. Google the verse. I know it says somewhere. Then Google it. My wife and I have our computers near us when we counsel, and I'm looking for something, and I can't remember where it is. I wrote a book about Proverbs. I still can't find some of them, right? It's like somebody put them in a blender in chapters 10 to 30. And I know there's a one that says somewhere, and but I'll take the time. Look it up. Find it. Have them read it out loud. I've had cases where I've said the right thing three or four times, and you can just see the blank expression. Then I have them read the scripture. Oh, <laughs> lights come on. Living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And, and that's also why, if, if, if you want to help people, you need to be an expert in the Bible. Uh, it's interesting, when, when Rich Gans, who was converted, he was working in psychotherapy in a prestigious hospital, and he had an offer to go teach at a famous Christian college in their psychology department, one in Orange County. Uh, and, and he said, but I, I'm not even a Christian that long. So they were so excited that he had, all, as a Christian, had all this expertise. Then he went to Jay Adams, and Jay said, do you want to be able to tell people, thus says the Lord? Go to seminary. And of course, now... You have programs like at Masters and Southern and some of the places where... And this is what IBCD exists to do, is to teach you the Bible so you can use the Bible to help people with their problems. And you want to know the Word of God. I'll give you another free hint. The best way to learn the Word of God is to have my other job, which is I get to preach to the Bible consecutively week after week. And in 20, well, 30-plus years of weekly teaching, preaching... And not all of you can be preachers. I don't think you ladies should be public preachers, but you can teach a women's Bible study. You can teach your kids just to study through books of the Bible. I find studying with a, having people you're teaching makes you more focused um, so that you know not just here's where this verse is and here's where that verse is, but boy, when you've studied Romans and you get to chapter 6, that's the first command in this whole book. He spent six and a half chapters just telling us what Jesus, or five, and a half, five chapters plus telling us just what Jesus did for us. This is climactic. And, and you want to know the Word of God. And then biblical counseling relies upon the Holy Spirit. The things of God are foolishness to the natural man. He cannot understand them. The Word of the Cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 1.18, 1 Corinthians 2.14. Um, this is not some technique. This is also where it's different from medicine, right? I mean, if you're a doctor and somebody has a broken arm... Uh, there's a standard procedure and it's going to work almost every time. But in biblical counseling, I can have two couples come in who are fighting and I can show them from the Bible the same principles of, you know, get the log out of your own eye, confess your own sin first, confess it to God, show mercy, show grace, as God has shown grace to you. And I can have one couple walk at it for one session, their life has changed forever, their marriage has changed forever, and things are great. Actually, that's one cool thing about this conference. I had somebody come in and say, you counseled us eight years ago. I said, I have no idea who you are. I don't remember counseling you. We're doing great. That makes, you know, God in his mercy. But then you'll say the same thing to another couple, and you'll meet with them 50 times. And you do the same, it's like Groundhog Day, right? Same counseling session 50 times where, and, and they're still fighting like they always did. What's the difference? The spirit moves where he will. And that's why we pray before we start. We pray when we end. We pray in between. We ask them to pray that God the Spirit would work because I have no ability to fix anybody. It's the sovereign power of God working through His Spirit. This is also what gives us hope. I mean, you're, you're standing before a bunch of dry bones. Uh, you don't have the ability to change people. You see situations. I had a new adultery case walk in recently, and I've gone through several adultery cases lately. I find these to be very wearying. And I said, oh, Lord, <laughs> help. I don't even want to do this. But it's his spirit which will empower the counselor to persist and to bring the word of God to bear and will work on the hearts of the angry one to forgive and the guilty one to repent. And then the angry one to realize I'm guilty too and I need to repent. And you're totally dependent upon the Lord. Um, so then in biblical counseling is gentle and compassionate. Galatians 6 verse 1, if someone's caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore him gently. 
And that also, by the way, gets to the qualifications for biblical counselors. Uh, you have to be walking with the Lord. Uh, I, I, even more, gentleness is just one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. You who are spiritual, in the context of Galatians 6, does anybody know what the context of Galatians 6 is? It's the end of Galatians 5, which is walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. The deeds of the flesh are... Brrr. The, de- the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, all of this. You have to be walking closely with the Lord to be able to do this. Uh, Paul, one of my favorite counseling verses, Tom will probably bring this one up if you stay for him in the latter sessions. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. First Thessalonians 5.14 So there's a patience and a gentleness we're trying to be Christ-like in the counseling. That's what we're aiming at, is to speak to the one, them the way Jesus would speak to them. Now, Jesus doesn't like sin, so we have to be firm. But it's not just bashing people and telling them how guilty they are. It's caring for them. I, I'll use the analogy, again, with the wife whose husband committed adultery is that God wants us to look upon him like the good Samaritan looked at the guy beaten and bloody by the side of the road. I too am a sinner. This could have happened to me. My job is not to judge this person and to heap condemnation upon him and make him hurt. My job is to heal the wounds. It's going to hurt enough if he does the right thing. But to come alongside. Now healing the wounds is you must repent and it's going to be hard and we need to begin this journey together. But it's, it's uh, caring deeply, which is why it can be really exhausting. Um, I, I skipped over one. I go back to biblical counseling is founded upon sound theology. Uh, part of our care and discipleship training spends some sessions on sanctification, that doctrine. We've touched upon the doctrine of man, the doctrine of God. Uh, on, one thing I love about ACBC is in the extensive exams you have to take to be nationally certified, one entire exam is theology. My wife on that one alone wrote over 30 pages. And it's because theology is the foundation of everything, understanding who man is. But even you think of the attributes of God. As you, the attributes of God, every one of them applies to a counseling case. Great trouble has come into your life. God is sovereign. Um, God is good, even if it doesn't seem good to you right now. Um, the attributes of God are, are comforting to us. Every branch of theology applies in counseling. Uh, the Word of God, and what it, it's infallible, it's sufficient. Our understanding that revelation is complete in the scriptures, and we're not to, counseling isn't asking God to give you some new word. It's to give you the word, help you by the Spirit to find in this book what you can apply to help them. Does eschatology apply in biblical counseling? It does. And the cool thing is, as we all can agree, even if you're premillennial, amillennial, whatever, people who are suffering need the blessed hope that these present trials are light and momentary compared to the glory yet to be revealed when we're in the presence of Christ. <coughs> eschatology is what really what, what eschatology is really about when you read the New Testament isn't so people can argue over charts they're drawing. It's Christians are suffering terribly who are being reminded that one day God will come and he will bring righteous judgment upon those who have afflicted you and you will be exalted with Christ and it will all be worthwhile. And people who are suffering need that, that hope. If, if God has put you in a really hard marriage, and you know God wants you to stay, your ultimate hope isn't, I know my husband will... I can't tell anybody, your husband's going to change, he's going to become a nice guy tomorrow, and he'll start listening to you and being kind to you. It may be God's will you have a hard life. But the glory yet to be revealed when you're in the presence of Christ and you stuck with that hard marriage, and maybe when he was 80 years old, he was converted after you suffered for 55 years in his presence. And God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And even if he's not converted when he's 80, well done, good and faithful servant. And God may use you to those. So every branch of theology is touched upon in biblical counseling. Uh, and then biblical counseling is not merely for an elite group of professionals. 
the seminal book for Nuthetic or Biblical Counseling is Competent to Counsel by J. Adams. And that phrase comes from Romans 15, verse 14. Maybe I'd have you read it in your Bible. There are different translations. Um, but he says in Romans 15, 14, I'm, I have the New American Standard. Concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. And the word admonish is the Greek nutheteo, which could be encourage, exhort. The idea being what, what Paul is picturing in the life of the church, and this is actually part of my plenary talk tomorrow, it's not just to get a few pastors trained. That you want the entire church to be full of people who know how to help each other. So my wife talked about gossip last night. And so if you have a woman in your church who is gossiping, you don't wait for her to get to the elders. It's, that it's likely after she's done it two or three times, her sister in Christ is going to say, I'm not sure, I don't think you should be telling me this. And let's go to these verses in Proverbs. And I, I know you didn't intend to, but you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a community of peacemaking where people just know if there's a conflict, you need to get the log out of your own eye first. And, and there's biblical process for this. And there's a whole culture of this kind of help with people trained at, at various levels. But it's all of our responsibility. Like Galatians 6.1, it doesn't say you elders, if someone's caught in Any of you who are spiritual. The whole body working together. Um, and then... Ideally, biblical counseling takes place in the context of the local church. That's my whole talk tomorrow morning if you're here at 9 a.m. is that even our counseling center is under the authority of a local church. We work with churches. We try to train churches. The institution that God has established in this age through which he's doing his work is the local church. The local church is essential to counseling. And I don't want to give my whole talk right now, but to discipline, discipleship, ongoing care... It's the church is absolutely foundational, and quite frankly, one of the biggest problems is we have a counseling center under a local church that various churches participate in, uh, both in counseling and overseeing. But it's under one particular local church. The biggest single unifying factor of the counselees who come to see us is they're not really well established in a good church. They're not being shepherded where they are, and it could be their fault. It could be the church's fault, and. Uh, we're not going to solve their problem until we address that one. We'll help them with the other aspects of it. But that is a, a key component. Um, I have you know, a few other questions that are raised about biblical counseling in general. One say, well, is there any value at all to secular psychology? And I mentioned this last night as my summary would be secular psychology can be helpful descriptively, but it is generally unhelpful prescriptively. And if you go to big biblical counseling conferences like the ACBC in Louisville this year may have 2,000 people at it and you'll see these professors and big shots and they may quote from the DSM the, 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 in terms of a problem and say here's a problem they've observed. You know, depression, uh, post-traumatic stress, uh, you know, they can observe research psychology, just seeing here's how people act and here's what's going on. There's and even understanding how does the brain work. And you know, there are interesting things in the realm of common grace that you can learn from them. Uh, but when it comes to what's the solution to the mess that sin has made of humanity, the Bible alone gives the answer. And some of their prescriptions are just awful. I don't just mean drugs. <laughs> I mean their advice as well as sometimes attacking spiritual, sometimes attacking spiritual problems with medications. Um, some people say, well, what about unbelievers? How do you counsel unbelievers? And Jay Adams' answer would be, which I think was a good one, you really can't counsel unbelievers if you understand what counseling is. If counseling is defined as helping people to achieve God's goals in their lives, Romans 8 says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They cannot do one single solitary thing that pleases God because they're living a life of autonomy from God. And so he calls it pre-counseling. <laughs> And, and we have another word for it, that. It's evangelism. <laughs> yeah. 
But actually, one thing cool about having a counseling ministry in a church or us having a counseling center in the church is I've seen several conversions over the years. Again, this is a line I'll use tomorrow as well. I've had people come in who thought they were Christians, and when they hear the gospel and they understand their own sinfulness and they look to Christ savingly for the first time, they get converted. There's a lady here now who is the wife of an elder in our church who was converted in biblical counseling 20 years ago. Uh, There are others who have come in. And so we welcome unbelievers, but we're not just going to teach them techniques so they can kind of get along better in life in a godless way. We'll talk about their problem, then show how the gospel is the center of that. You're not, I've even had cases where you've got a believing wife and an unbelieving husband, so I'm counseling her while I'm evangelizing him. But I might even say, look, here's how the Bible says you're supposed to act. Just love her like Christ does. Buddy, you can't do it until you know the love of Christ. Paul says, walk in love as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. And until you know that love, you can't replicate that love. And in the case I'm thinking, that guy did get converted. I had the privilege of seeing him baptized. So, but, but we're not just about teaching tricks and techniques. It's, it, it's founded on the gospel. You say, well, does biblical counseling ever fail? It can fail in a lot of ways. Sometimes I've probably done a bad job. And if somebody better had been there, they might have helped more. But sometimes you may be faithful and again, we've been called to be faithful, not to be successful, just like evangelism and everything else. And so you try as best you can from the Word of God to as best you can. You're not all-knowing all like Jesus is, but you're trying to say, what would Jesus say to this person right now? What would the Scripture say? And, and as you know the Bible, you, kind of like Vodi was saying, is that even though he hadn't got a lot of formal training in counseling when he was in seminary, people would meet with him. Well, I know what the Bible says about that. I'll just read you that part. And let's talk about that. And that's what you're trying to do. But then God makes it grow. One plants into the waters, God makes it grow. And so we see some people miraculously transformed. We have some people like the rich young ruler who go away sad. He didn't go away sad because Jesus was a bad counselor. Jesus gave fine advice. (laughs) But this man would not listen. And so we're called to be faithful. And and it actually takes some toughness. Uh, My wife counsels mostly on Mondays for our center and then she's almost every day a week counseling for our church and one of my ministries to my wife is to build her up when she gets kind of discouraged because it's just emotionally even the good ones are emotionally draining but it's sad sometimes because you see someone and you see them ruining their lives she had a lady she was coming in who was trying to come out of prostitution and drugs and she had Christian family members who brought her brought this lady in and um, she went back seemed like she was making progress. She was going to a decent church. and um, it, it can be heartbreaking, but then you see others. My wife has some, and she just comes home giddy, seeing what God is doing. And she's got a couple ladies right now who had fallen very deeply into sin, and now they just have a passionate love for the Word of God, and they're trying to uh, bring that into their homes and help others. just an amazing thing. So... Our function is, as IBCD, is to help equip you to be able to help others. And every one of us has that calling. We, some people, even in our own church, say, well, I don't want to come to that conference. I don't think I'll ever be a counselor. You are a counselor. It's just whether you're any good or not, <laughs> whether you're biblical or not. When people, people are coming to every one of us from day to day with their problems, and the question is, are you telling them what Jesus wants you to tell them, what Jesus would say to them? Or are you giving them worldly platitudes? Just do what's right for you. Just follow your feelings like the Disney movie says or whatever. Or are you trying in a loving and compassionate way from the Bible to help people? And then our training, other people are doing it too, is trying to equip you practically to be able to do that. If you keep coming, what Tom will do in the next two sessions, will go through kind of an overview of the methodology. And, of course, our hope is to be a wet your appetite. Boy, I want to do this. Let's get the DVDs and do it in our church or home. Or I'll listen to the audios while I'm working out because I want to grow in this. And some of you might go through the IBCD certification, which we'd be really happy about. Others might say, boy, I did that. Now I want to go for ACBC or perhaps get counseling ministries going in our church. And that's what we're here for is uh, to promote and encourage in the church what I believe the church has been doing for 2,000 years and will do until Christ returns. And We want the church to recapture that, what they've kind of let get away from them. We can't make the world listen to us, but certainly in our role where God has given us a voice, we want to be faithful.
Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. We thank you for an infallible word. We thank you for your spirit who helps us to understand and changes lives. We thank you for your church, which is a community which can be a hospital, a rehab, a training center. Thank you for these brothers and sisters who would spend their time today. And Lord, encourage and motivate them to be used of you, to know your word better, to care for people in a Christ-like way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2015 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free audios are available at www.ibcd.org.